We just have to acknowledge that there is a subset of people in the Muslim world for whom it is true, as they say of themselves, that they love death more than we love life. You have groups of people who are offered a state who we are not listening to. They do not want the state that they are offered. They are offered a choice between a state and a chant. From the river to the sea is what they chose. I'm just saying we have to recognize we're in a we're in a hot war. Sam, I think this with, is the same jihadis. problem that you're having with Trump and and other things, which is you are being invited into the abyss. Hey guys, trigonometry needs your help. We took a big risk creating the show, and for us to keep doing the incredible work that you all love, we need your support. That's the only way we're going to stay independent and create content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. There is no other podcast where you'll hear interviews with Nigel Farage one week and the next week you've got Aaron Bastani, the founder of left-wing show Navarra Media, on the same platform. You know the mainstream media aren't honest. You know they've been caught lying again and again. You know they can't be trusted. The only way to change that is to make a stand and support independent content creators like Trigonometry to produce better and more honest content. We have big plans and we'll shortly be announcing exciting new shows and more terrific interviews with huge guests. That isn't going to happen without your help. When you support us, you also get incredible extra content, such as extended interviews with none of those irritating adverts, and they'll be released 24 hours early just for you. We'll have exclusive bonus interviews that only you get to hear. Click the link on the podcast description or find the link on your podcast listening app to join us. Support us and help change the way we have conversations and make the world saner. Gentlemen, welcome both. The reason our show works is neither Francis nor I pretend to be experts, uh, and we ask the questions that are on the minds of most people, or at least we try. Uh, I think the questions that are on the minds of most people now is that we are in a moral quandary because we simultaneously believe many things about Israel and Palestine that are incompatible. And I'll give you a list. I don't want innocent civilians to die. And Israel has to destroy Hamas. These two are already internally contradictory. And we can keep going further and further into exploring that. But what I see is that the thing that is right to say on social media, to look smart and sophisticated and balanced and nuanced, is impractical. It puts you in a position where you don't know what to do. Um, so how do we think about this? How do we think about this issue, Sam? Well, I'm not saying anything on social media. That's, that's <laughs> one life hack that I would recommend. Um, I've been looking at social media and I've been seeing that it's... Um, I, mean, I just think it's... It's poison for us. I mean, even the even the good parts are making it impossible to. Uh, I think I think it's making us ungovernable. Like in demo, I think it's I think it's eroding the basis of democracy. It's like even the true information, even the the, the virtue of it is that it's giving some kind of transparency that you fear would not otherwise exist, and that, that is, you know, good for error correcting on some level, but. Even that in surplus is toxic. And then there's all the distortions of it. There are the things that are performative that wouldn't be happening in the real world, but for the fact that they're going, it's, it's going to be broadcast on social media. Um, I just think it's, um, 
as I've said many places before, I, mean, I think it is a kind of psychological experiment that is deranging us. Agreed. And, and so, but let's yeah. come to Israel and Palestine because I think that's yeah. what people want to think about rationally. How do we think about that issue? Well, I think uh, the most obvious error that people will make now is to imagine that body count is the only measure by which the, the moral balance swings, right? So if Israel goes into Gaza and uh, inadvertently kills more people than were killed on their side, they've done, they've done too much by definition, right? Um, that's, just, that's wrong in all kinds of ways, but the, the, the obvious way that it's wrong is that it completely ignores what people are actually attempting to achieve on both sides, what kind of world they're attempting to build, what their intentions actually are. What would they do if they had more power? If, if the asymmetric power in the region were reversed, how would, the, how would Hamas behave vis-a-vis -vis Israel, right? Um, and one thing is obvious. Israel, for decades, if it had wanted to perpetrate a genocide against the Palestinians, could have done that on any given day. Right? It would have been trivial. Tomorrow, they could kill everyone in Gaza if they wanted. They obviously haven't wanted that. They obviously don't want to do that now. If you reverse that balance of power and ask what would Hamas do, what would jihadist organizations anywhere do, uh, they would kill all the Jews. And, and they have told us that ad nauseum. The founding charter of Hamas said that explicitly. It looked forward to a time where, where Quranic prophecy would be realized when the earth itself would cry out against the Jews, where, where the, the rocks and the trees would say, oh, Muslim, there's a Jew behind me, come kill him, right? Except for one tree. Yeah, except the one tree, yes, yeah, that's right. Um, so that, the, the difference in intention, while people think intention is this, is this um, abstraction, Intention is the software that everyone is running. Intention is the best predictor of what people will do if they're given an opportunity to do it, right? If they have the power to do it, mm -hmm. if they have the technology to do it. Um, what will a jihadist organization do if it gets nuclear weapons? What will a jihadist organization do if it gets you know, a, a viable bioweapon, right? We know the answers to these questions. These people have been telling us this for as long as I've been alive and, 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 and in isolated cases, absolutely proven to a moral certainty their commitment to nihilism and massacre. I mean, the, the, the Islamic State, if, if, if you couldn't, if you knew the details of what was happening in the Islamic State and couldn't understand that these people mean what they say and believe what they say they believe, then you're, you're living on another planet. So anyone who's surprised, the only surprise here is that there was an assumption, and a you know, historically understandable assumption, that Hamas was not as extreme as Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Uh, and it certainly seems that some among them are prepared to be that extreme. So, but, I mean, we're, we're, we're splitting hairs. I mean, jihadism is a, is a, um, a fairly unified concept, you know, whatever the methods, whatever the, the, the methods and the, and the uh, past behavior. And 
we just have to acknowledge that there is a subset of people in the Muslim world who, for whom it is true, as they say of themselves, that they love death more than we love life. We being free, secular people everywhere, Jews, Christians, moderate Muslims, uh, there are people who actually want to be martyred and, have their, and see their kids martyred, right? This is not, they're not bluffing. They're, they're perfectly willing to die for the pleasure and, and um, opportunity of killing non-combatants, intentionally killing non-combatants. So that the moral error that people are going to make now, and they've, they've, they're already making it, is to think that when Israel tells people to evacuate northern Gaza, and they don't because Hamas is telling them not to do it, or it becomes practically impossible and Egypt doesn't let them out, etc., and they drop bombs targeting uh, Hamas installations that have been purposefully put next to civilian areas that will cause carnage when, when Israel bombs them, like hospitals and schools and mosques. When Israel bombs those targets and kids die, which is obviously horrible, that is the same thing as Hamas jihadists coming in under cover of rocket fire at dawn and murdering babies in their cribs. It's not the same thing. And body count doesn't resolve okay. that disparity. Agreed. So we'll come to you in a sec, Eric. But so what, just during this. <laughs> as are we all. But what does that mean, Sam? Let me, let me ask you this, right? The United States dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan, two of them. And after Hiroshima, uh, I think it was Hiroshima, not Nagasaki, uh, the U.S. Army went in and they measured the blast impact. Not the release of energy from the nuclear bombs, but the actual destructive impact. And then they measured that and said, how much conventional munitions would we have to use to achieve the same destructive impact? Mm. In the last year and a half of World War II, the Allies, the British and the Soviets and the Americans, dropped 50 Hiroshima's a month on Germany. We flattened it, right? Because it was a death cult that took over that country and Hitler said, we're going to make a last stand. We don't care about civilian casualties. We're going to stand to the death. What you are saying is Gaza is in the grips of a death cult of the same nature or worse. What does that mean? Right? I don't want a million children in Gaza to die and be burnt in yeah. bomb shelters like the Germans. I don't want that. And I wouldn't defend our, our um, aerial bombing of, of German cities and, and you know, our dropping of the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I, mean, I, I think there there was a calculation that, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on recent scholarship on this. I mean, I know that... Um, about 20 years ago, A.C. Grayling, the British philosopher, wrote a, a book about the, um, specifically the, the, our bomb, the Allied bombing of German cities and concluded that it really was ethically unjustifiable, right? That it's just, it, we, we told ourselves a story about how this was necessary to win the war and it was not a compelling, compelling story even at the time. Uh, I'm not so sure what analysis is true there, but... Um, what I think, I think Israel is held to a higher standard than certainly we were 70 years ago, and even than we, you know, the, the British and the, and the Americans are now. 
Um, I think they should hold themselves to the highest possible standard. I mean, they, they certainly should be alert to the difference between committing war crimes and following the international law that governs how you wage war. Um, I, you know, I think they should be uh, as reluctant as they can practically be to, to, to kill innocent people. And um, knowing that it's impossible not to kill some innocent p- people when you're, when you're trying to fight militants in a crowded city, right? As especially when those militants, based on their own completely deranged moral worldview, are committed to using their own people as human shields, right? I mean, that, that disparity is, um, as far as the, the moral you know, algebra that, that can give you insight into the difference between the two sides, that disparity says everything to me. It's like, I, you know, this is something I recently said on my own podcast, but if you just imagine the Israelis attempting to use their own non-combatants as human shields, right, in any conflict against jihadists. You know, let's say Hezbollah comes across the northern border and the Israelis line up with their own women and kids, you know, putting the barrels of, of their weapons on, their, on the shoulders of their children, thinking that Hezbollah is going to be reluctant to shoot through the bodies of their children to kill IDF soldiers. I mean, it is a completely surreal, you know, Monty Python sketch where all the Jews die. It is not... It, it, it is laughable. It is unthinkable. It's unthinkable at every level of it. It's unthinkable that the that the Jews would treat their own children and and, and non-combatants that way, given what they believe about everything. And it's unthinkable that they would think that their enemies would be deterred by that behavior, right? But when you reverse it, as it is the case in in the real world, we have had to we you know, we Westerners and the Israelis have had to confront this behavior on multiple fronts in every conflict against jihadists. They routinely use non-combatants as human shields, and, and Hamas is doing that now. Um, I think Israel has to figure out how to navigate around that and eradicate jihadists, you know, eradicate Hamas. I mean, we're, we're confounded to some degree by our, our terminology here. We're, we keep talking about terrorists. And we, we, we had a war on terror for, you know, the, a quarter of a century now. Um, terrorism is a tactic. Terrorism is not the thing we're fighting. We are fighting jihad. And um, What's the difference, Sam? Explain to people what the difference well, is. Well, jihadism, jihadism is the, the, um, the radical core of... Islam. It is, this, I mean, it is this principle of holy war that can be justified in various contexts. Yes, there are many, many millions of Muslims, thankfully, who, just, who, would, who would justify it in, in ways that we would recognize as something we could live with, right? So a, a defensive war, right? A just war, you know, just war theory. Okay, great. There are other Muslims who say, no, 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 you don't understand. Jihad is just an inner spiritual struggle. Okay, great. But historically and practically now, Jihad has all a component of jihad has always been you you convert, subjugate, kill the infidel. Right? It's like the, the, the Islam. Islam is a religion of conquest. It views itself as a religion of conquest. It it expects to win these 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 contests for believers at the you know at the end of time, and it has an expl- explicitly. Uh, martial 
ethic, which is uh, we have to win through force, right? And we're happy to die trying. All the, however long we fail, we're ultimately going to succeed, but we're happy to throw our, our bodies and the bodies of our children into this because this life is a total illusion. It is, has absolutely no value. This is just a, a anteroom on the, on the thresholds of either heaven or hell. And the only thing that matters is where you go after you die, right? And only the true believers uh, go, go to paradise. And um, if you kill them inadvertently, if you blow up a crowd of, ki- of, of Muslim kids in an attempt to kill some soldiers that are handing out candy to them, as happened in our conflict in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, there's, there's no factor. The kids, the, the, the good Muslims, the, the real Muslims are going to paradise. They're going to thank you, right? No problem. Um, and the bad Muslims, the fake Muslims, the, the, the infidels, the, the, the uh, idolaters, they're going to go to hell sooner, and that's good. That's an intrinsic good. That's exactly what the creator of the universe wants. Um, there, it's impossible to make a moral error when you're a jihadist, right? If you die, it's good. If your family dies, it's good. If the infidel dies, it's good. This is a death cult. And we have been lying to ourselves in the secular West that there's some other logic, some other variable that explains this behavior. It's economics, it's politics. These are much, the, the, the assumption is that when you see people behaving in this extraordinarily destructive and you know, psychopathic way, they must have been pushed there by some awful treatment that would explain it. Right? This must be ordinary human rational behavior in extremis. Right? These people have been so tortured by the occupation, by the, the apartheid state of, of Israel, by the open-air prison of Gaza. I mean, these, these phrases that are now you know, used reflexively in the media. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying life in Gaza isn't horrible. I'm not saying it's not intolerable. We can talk about that. But there's a layer of this phenomenon and of this behavior that we've been living with, uh, you know, most clearly since September 11, 2001, but it obviously precedes that, which is explained only by the religious ideology, right? When people are doing the unthinkable, uh, again, you can find so many cases where they're doing it without grievance, right? Where somebody drops out of the London School of Economics to go join the Islamic State for the pleasure of killing Yazidis and, you know, raping their women, right? And it's just, this is, and this is what was happening, you know, ad nauseum, right? You had from a hundred countries, right? So this is, so what we saw Hamas do in Israel last week is a subset, it's just another example of that same behavior. Yes, it has this local, political, nationalistic uh, struggle over territory context, but that's not the thing that explains the behavior. Um, And we have to get our heads around that. We, we, again, I'm not talking about, I'm not even talking about non-Muslim, I'm talking about all moderate Muslims desperately. The world waits in desperation for moderate Muslims to get their heads around the problem of jihad. And Eric, would you agree with Sam's assessment of the situation? We'll get you back to the interview in a minute. But first, let me recommend an incredible alternative to coffee that will give you that all-day energy without the jitters in a delicious hot drink. Mud water is made with four functional mushrooms. Don't make things out of dysfunctional mushrooms. And only a fraction of the caffeine you'll find in a cup of coffee. 
so you'll get that natural energy without the crash. Each ingredient was added for a purpose. Cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and hot chocolate-like flavor, lion's mane for focus, cordyceps to promote natural energy, and both chaga and reishi to support a healthy immune system. It's quality stuff and tastes like cacao and chai had a baby. Why you'd want to drink a baby is anyone's guess, but there we are. Plus, it's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA certified organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher. So not only does it taste great, you can also give it to your woke mates. Right now, you can save $20, plus get a free sample of creamer and a free frother by going to the link in the description below or heading to mudwtr.com slash trigonometry. That's mudwtr.com slash trigonometry to save $20 on your subscription and claim your freebies. And now, back to the show. I disagree, first of all, with Constantine before I even get to the sand. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, you phrase this immediately as what's going on in Israel and Palestine. From the perspective of Hamas, what do you mean? It's all happening in Palestine, right? So the idea is that there's a, a European occupier sitting in Palestine. You have an open-air prison. People are oppressed. It's completely unlivable. Um, and um, resistance was taken against the European oppressor uh, in Palestine. So I don't know what you're talking about. So that perspective, for example, um, has to do with the language. So as soon as the frame is in place, I can tell you what the argument is. You know, it's, it's like looking at different opening tic-tac-toe moves. Uh, I've got all the games memorized, and so I, I just don't want to even participate as soon as I hear that. Um, because of these different mindsets. Now, to Sam's point, uh, I had a big disagreement in some sense with the way in which the new atheists took on the problem um, of jihad. And that is because it comes out of totalizing. Totalizing ideologies are really the problem. Um, there's a North Korean uh, totalizing ideology. There's a, a jihadi totalizing ideology. Sorry to interrupt. Just for clarity, for these people who might not know, what does totalizing ideology mean? Eric? Well, what I mean in this case is, is that there's an entire worldview which solves and addresses all of your issues. Um, how should we structure a family? What is the purpose of life? Uh, what risks may be uh, assumed? What, what, when, when may one kill? You have an entire worldview that is effectively incompatible with the outside world. All, all notions of tolerance of coming up with you know, two people who don't really agree, but agree enough in order to serve each other coffee, and maybe marry into each other's families, you know, whatnot. Um, there is a, a sort of way in which you're, you're open through moderation and through tolerance to the points of view of others within a relatively broad but still restricted spectrum. This is outside of that spectrum. So the, the issue is not Islam to me. The issue is totalizing ideologies that, that provide all answers. And there aren't that many of them left, right? Like Soviet communism died off. It was a totalizing ideology. Um, you see the art, the music, the, the, the cinema. You can, you can spend your entire life in a Soviet mindset um, based on what was produced during that period. 
Um, but but not, to, not all totalizing ideologies are the same. No, they are. Right? So uh, it's like but, so, but so the, the, crude, the martyrdom wait, wait, completely say, changes the game theory, right? Like, like if, if, if Putin I, get, was get, a martyr, yeah. we would feel differently about I, the, the war, war in Ukraine. I promise. But okay. I'm just trying to account <laughs> let, let for Let me drag it. you there. <laughs> so the first problem I have is that totalizing ideologies are dangerous because there's no way from outside mm -hmm. to check them. Yes. So if there's an error, then you end up with whatever that error is, you know, to the 10,000th power. Now, when you drop in this as a strategy, uh, the next reason I can't really respond to what Gut said is that the, the language, again, that we use, like both sides. Oh, so what about Christian uh, Arabs, you know, the, somehow they're not part of the uh, Islamic Jihad or Hamas. But on the other hand, they may have sympathies with it. Or on the other hand, they may secretly hate it and say, how can we can't get better representation? Some of them may pine to live in Israel. Um, as, you know, I lived in Israel for two years and I had all sorts of crazy conversations. And the spectrum of Arab perspectives or Druze perspectives or, you know, it's a much richer place. And I worry already about the both sides thing because it, it, it ain't both sides. It's so many different factions. And, and then in order to get at this, because the Israeli government will have to take action mm -hmm. against the Hamas government, right? And so that is a both sides. So let's talk about that wait, 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 wait. because you're arguing with the frame. So give us the frame the way that you think the frame should be? Well, my, my, my first comment is, is that you're going to use words like Palestinians. You're going to use words like occupation, occupied territories. Somebody else might use Judea and Samaria. Somebody else might say Palestine. As soon as I know the language, I know what the arguments are going to be. Okay. This is not my language, and I don't believe these things, and I've agreed to be more or less silent uh, on a bunch of things while there was a peace process because peace processes are, are about BS to a certain extent. You have to lie through a peace process in order to get something at the end of it, and that failed. So, you know, the first thing I'm going to say is I don't believe that this is an, uh, an occupied people. I don't believe that the Arabs are under occupation, and that's going to sound crazy because you're not exposed to any perspective that sounds like that. So how, how are, could you ever come to that conclusion? You have groups of people who are offered a state who we are not listening to. They do not want the state that they are offered. They are offered a choice between a state and a chant. And if you know the chant, it's from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea is what they chose. You could have a state or you could have a chant. And they want the chant. They are the tip of the spear in the global battle against Western hegemony, against an occupying European power in holy Arab land. And they're not going to give up on that as a collective political entity for a relatively modest, prosperous state trading with, with the occupier, with you know, joint economics, joint faint.
that's very troubling to us because we have this idea of why wouldn't you want a state? You could have a state. You could be prosperous. You could send your kids to Purdue, you know? And that's, that's not easy for us. This is basically, if you think about motherhood, you don't think about Munchausen by proxy, right? Now, what do you do with a deal? What do you do when you have a mother who comes to the hospital with a child who's continuously getting sick, you know, and getting harmed? You know, you have to ask, well, is it possible that the mother is harming the child? So you're about to see tiny children pulled out of rubble in northern Gaza. You're going to see it ad nauseum. You're going to see people rushing to the hospital. You're going to see mothers wailing. So we can talk about the whole thing about the martyrdom and how everybody prays that their family will be martyred. And you know what? Sometimes it's true. Sometimes you see on camera somebody saying, thank God they took my son, you know, blah, blah, blah. But those are actually much more complicated things. Sometimes you turn the camera off and the person is crying because they know what they're supposed to say and, and they know what they're actually feeling. So my, my problem with this is that this is so much more complicated than the, than the discussion we're pre-programmed to have that is guaranteed to fail. The richness of this problem, where Hamas is effectively the mother in a Munchausen by proxy situation, right? And the children, in, you're damn straight you're going to be pulling babies out of that rubble because that's what Hamas wants. And Israel cannot figure out how to extricate herself from this dance of death. But that's why we're here. That's what we're talking about. Right. So what I'm trying to say is you don't get out of this. You have a very unconventional foe in Hamas and in, and in totalitarian Islam and in, and in jihad and, and in ISIS and al-Qaeda. And for some reason, mainstream media refuses to show us the images that they showed us during the Vietnam War through mainstream outlets. If you saw what I've seen, if, if, you, if you watched the Hamas videos, the ISIS videos, the, if you read Dabiq, if you did any of this stuff, you'd be sick to your stomach. You'd be a changed person. And we don't have that. I remember that the night my parents turned off the TV during the Vietnam War, so one of my earliest memories, I believe it was GI's heads on pikes carried by the, North, the Viet Cong. You're watching American severed heads on sticks. If you think about all the Pulitzer Prize-winning photographs from the Vietnam era, right? you're watching a monk burned to death. You're watching a street execution right to the head. You're watching naked children with their children with their clothes burned off from napalm. You didn't see Falling Man. The most famous picture from 9-11 was basically not shown in the United States. There is this layer that is determined to push a fiction to us, which is a transparent fiction about the general nature of Islam. Islam is complicated. You have to study it. There are multiple schools of thought beyond Shia versus Sunni versus Ahmadi. You know, you, you could just in Sunni Islam, different schools of jurisprudence, which lead to totally radically different outcomes between the Salafists and the Hanafi adherents. And what we've done is we've come up with this, this childlike concept of an oppressed people and a religion of peace and 
all of this stuff is unworkable. And it's all mind control and it's all propaganda. And what my feeling is, again, is I don't want to start the conversation from where I think you guys want to start it from. I want to start from the fact that none of us are prepared to have this conversation because we haven't been exposed to it. We don't know what the real issues are. And if we take the terms that are handed to us, if we have the best and most intellectual conversation, it will still be completely morally yeah, Fine. Let, let me just disagree with the, the, the general thrust of what you said there. Because sure. much of what you said is true, but doesn't actually confound the, the argument I, that I'm making, which is that all of that complexity is true. There's the complexity of Islam. It's, it's, it's this variegated culture, you know, and it interacts with cultural uh, contingencies that have nothing to do with religion, right? So there are things that we would object to under Islam, like, you know, female genital mutilation, which um, doesn't have a direct, really direct connection to, to theology, right? And yet it's correlated with, with, with the Muslim world, but it's not exclusive to the Muslim world, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all this hair splitting we can do. But there is a very simple core to this, right? The concept of jihad, the concept of martyrdom, the, 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 the very clear You have a totalizing death cult. I get it. Yeah, de- death to apostates, right? All the, this, is, this is the clearest piece of code. This is like, you know, eight lines of code that you, every time you run them it's produce the, the same amount. It's not the fact that it's the clearest piece of code, Sam. It's the fact that it has no repressor bound to it, to borrow a metaphor but, from DNA. Okay, but and so in, the, in Deuteronomy, we have repressor, Yes. bound to bad yeah, code so the code doesn't run. The problem is is that all the safeties are off the gun. You've got promoter rather than repressor for some collection of people. For some other collection... Eric, explain wait, that in a different way. Sure. It's too complicated. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated for you, but it's right. too complicated for me to understand and therefore for a lot of people watching. So explain it simpler. Okay. We have code in Deuteronomy. A lot of the bad code in Islam comes from Judaism. So... Christianity and Islam are two of our most popular offshoots. Mm-hmm. And bad code has an inheritance property that it sometimes it permeates through the system if everybody agrees that the Old Testament is important. Mm-hmm. Right? In Deuteronomy, I believe there's a passage. By the way, what you said before about it being Quranic, I believe you were actually referencing a Hadith. I don't know if that's accurate about the yeah. ground. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, want to yeah. be clear about yeah. that. Yeah. In Deuteronomy, there's a passage that says, for example, if somebody says, let's go worship uh, gods unknown to our fathers set upon him with a stone. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any record of Jews stoning uh, an apostate, an proselytizing, a proselytizing apostate. However, how you get that code not to run is that you come up with some justification. For example, uh, too bad about the second temple to being destroyed. If we don't have the second temple, then we can't convene the Sanhedrin, uh, if the religious courts aren't enforced, then who, who decides whether this is just and unjust? So unfortunately, the code can't run. So we have got bad code that doesn't get run because it's blocked from running. Yep. And quite honestly, in many places in the world, you've got bad code that is blocked from running. And so I don't want to have a conversation about, you can read it right in the text. It's true, you can read it right in the text. But you have to think about the epigenetics what is it that determines does this code run or do, is this code blocked? So the problem is you have got a totalizing death cult with all the safeties off the gun for some subset of people. And then we're going to have this conversation about are we going to be fastidiously accurate, in which case it'll take 17 hours and nobody will want to watch it? Or is somebody going to say, you know, do the conservative thing to say, well, there's some, something's going wrong with Islam. And then you've got all the... 
the collateral damage of reasonable normal people who are, you know, a vice president for inventory at some company uh, who happens to go to the mosque. And he's thinking, like, what does this have to do with me? And then you've got the weird issues about the sympathies, where you've got sympathies for completely insane positions from completely moderate people, including now generically college students. College students are up for people firing automatic weapons into porta potties, having no idea who's inside. Is a mother, you know, nursing a child inside the porta potty? Who cares? And to say I stand with Palestine and show a hang glider for Black Lives Matter. Think about all the Black Lives Matter signs. I, throughout the entire George Floyd thing, I was saying, don't support Black Lives Matter. Now, Black Lives Matter was a piece of genius called declarative marketing. I don't know if you've ever heard it. So we had products in the 70s called, gee, your hair smells terrific, or I can't believe it's not butter was the name of the product. So the name of the product is called Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. How can you disagree with that? You know, so... Save, save the adorable puppy dogs is what I would call a terrorist organization if I had to, um, because how can you disagree with save the adorable puppy dogs? We're deranged by language. We're not watching things in mainstream contexts that would make us sick to our stomachs. And we are becoming infused with a radical ideology through the Democratic Party that is as if it was liberalism adjacent. Like you've got radical left-wing death cults that want revolution for the oppressed, that have a seat at the Democratic table at the same time that somebody like Sam or myself, uh, traditionally a Democrat, is completely unwelcome. And, you know, my, my claim is, is that you're seeing an echo of this madness of jihadism inside mainstream American campuses. And there's one thing that I would like to add as well is that my grandfather was an Arab. My grandfather was Venezuelan, but he originated from Lebanon. His surname was Saud. And he was Coptic Christian. And I, he was a doctor, and when he retired, he became a historian, and he, his books won prizes in his third language. And we went to Israel on holiday. Now, I'm a Catholic. All our family are Catholic. And they said to my grandfather, we said to my grandfather, would you like to come to Israel with us? Bear in mind, this is a historian. This is a learned man. And he said, as long as I live, I will never set foot on Israeli soil. I will never put money in an Israeli pocket. And I think the, the other aspect to this conversation that we're not addressing is the hatred mm. that exists on both sides. And we misuse that word hatred a lot. I hate peanuts. I hate the opposition football team. This is hatred to its core. And what do you do with two groups of people, some of whom hate each other in its truest sense? Can you resolve that? It's worse than hatred, and it's it's simpler than than Eric. You're making it out. It's it's not. I, granted, there's a there's a ton of complexity, but the complexity isn't the main problem Tell here, me. right? So it's worse than hatred in that. And again, I I really do think this is a a failure of empathy on the part of secular rational people. They just can't get their heads around what it would be like to actually believe in paradise, right? They've, they've never met, they've, they've, at most they've met people who pretend to believe in paradise. Um, they just don't know what true belief is like, and therefore they, don't, they can't kind of sympathetically run this particular piece of code and see its perfectly rational implications. I mean, what would, how would you live if you believed that there was nothing more important than waging war for the one true faith, 
and dying in the process. The only straight path to paradise was to, to be martyred, right? The, it's the only thing that bypasses the resurrection and all of the uncertainty of whether you're going to get there. It's just, this is, it's just like you're just whisked past the velvet rope and you're, you're, you're in the bottle room with God waiting for your friends and family to arrive, right? Um, people can't understand what it would be like to actually believe this. And so they, and so they think there must be some other motive. So when you read an issue of Dabiq, right, you know, the Islamic State's highly professional newsletter or magazine. Great production quality. It's, uh, it was shockingly good. I mean, that's, right? that's when I commented on it, it was, it, was, it was actually a very bad sign that it was as well-written and as well-copied as it was. They know their stuff. It was a big, no, because it shows, shows you the quality of the people they were recruiting from, from Europe, mostly. Um, but it's, and I, and I, I, I disagree with the, the, the analogy, the, the epigenetic genetics analogy you ran, because it's, there's not, it, this is a much shorter piece of code. I mean, the Quran, it's a much more unified uh, code. I mean, the, the Quran, there's, there's much less self-contradiction in the Quran than, than you find in the Bible, right? I mean, the Bible is the Bible just simply does not present a unified message, and it's very easy to pick and choose. And especially if you're a Christian, you wind up with with Jesus in his in his better moods, and you could be, you could live a completely benign, pacifist sort of life, or you could be uh, you know a, a religious lunatic who's who's dangerous and divisive. You can sort of have it however you want to have it. It is much harder under Islam. It's not to say that it's impossible. And, and, and as I said earlier... Islam is much better designed. They, they absolutely need to find their repressor hardware to figure out how to, how to make jihad just a matter of just war and just war theory, you know, uh, as you know, the Christians have it, more or less, and, um, and spiritual struggle. That would be great. They have to figure out how to do it. It's damn hard to do it, it, it especially when you look at the example of the Prophet Muhammad, who's not a guy who got crucified and told everyone to wait for the end of the world. He was a conquering warlord. I mean, it's like having Genghis Khan as your, as your savior. I mean, it's just, it's just not a... Islam is much better designed, Sam. For, jihad, for holy war and as for, for, for endless it's, conflict. It's, not, yes, an, it's it not a morally normative observation. It had the opportunity to look at Orthodox Judaism or Judaism and Christianity and it became a piece of code that is incredibly difficult to deal with, even down to the engineering of, um, of a priority of operations. And I forget how it works that you have the, what are the, the chapters, the suras. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 last the ones, ones that abrogate the other ones, yes. But right. the, the so, more so violent you do ones have abrogate the contradictions, yes, yeah. but you right. also have an order of operation. So right. it, it, as a piece of design, we can marvel uh, at Islam, but you still have two very different traditions, one clerical, one more akin to Protestantism of a direct relationship to the code. In, the, in Sunni Islam, you do have multiple schools of jurisprudential thought. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to get at is you became fixated on the fact that normal, ordinary Americans, median Americans, cannot figure out how to talk about the problems that come out of totalitarian jihadi ideology. Well, well, worse than that, I mean, it's to the point you just raised about what's happening on college campuses. We've got, we've got the most privileged and ostensibly well-educated people in our society, students right now, today, at Harvard and Stanford, who are signing you know, open letters 
in support of the murder of infants in their cribs because who are in support of message killing. Let's be very specific. It's not murder and it's not the number. Message killing is different than regular killing. Message killing is when you engage in an act and you make it cinematic and you make it hurt. You make it psychologically so disturbing that you amplify power of each death, right? Saddam was an incredible um, practitioner of message killing. When you think about uh, Luca Brazzi, you know, in The Godfather showing up uh, with a vest with a fish in it, nobody knows how to read the message. Um, You have kids on college campuses who are supportive of message killing and you think about how do you deliver the maximal amount of pain to a father? Like, okay. do, 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 but, but these are the same people who are, who are whinging about microaggressions and they need safe spaces, they need trigger warnings, they so, think words are violence. I mean, they, no, they, no, they don't, they don't think any of that, Sam. There was no woke ideology. You could not tie your shoes if you imbibed wokeism. It's such a contradictory a collection well, of things that don't make they, sense. They, they Michael Malice said on our show things. recently yeah. something that I think is not untrue, which is that these people don't use language to communicate, they use it to manipulate. That's right. Right? However, one of the things that always worries me about our space is we critique others and we don't model and we don't talk about how to think. And I've asked, we've spent 40 minutes, I've asked both of you how to think about this issue. We are nowhere near there. So let's try. You're both put some ideas forward about mm. how you see this problem. How do we think about this, Sam? How, if you're right, let's, just for the sake of argument, okay, well, Sam, this is all about jihadism. I have an answer for you, but I certainly preface it by saying that one, I'm not an expert in any of the relevant areas that would give me <laughs> confidence in, in this answer. This right? is the internet, it's yeah. never stopped anyone. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not, like, so I'm, I'm have very- Have you been on Twitter, Sam? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> not much recently. Um, so I'm I'm very happy that I'm not in charge here. Yes. Like, like, so it's like so I can say I, I can say this knowing that I have absolutely no responsibility to actually make this kind of decision. But I what I think we in the West, in this in the West, however you want to conceive it, um, should do is recognize that we are perpetually at war with aspiring martyrs. Right, we're at war with jihadis. Now, how many people like fitting that description actually exist in the Muslim world is as yet undetermined, right? But it's um, more than we should be comfortable with, and it's and and still m- most Muslims do not fit that description, obviously, right? And then there are kind of concentric circles of of decreasing s- support for the 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 um, the project of jihad. But we have to recognize that we're at war with jihadism. It's and it, it, in whatever guise, whatever organization or not or non-organization it, it exists in, um, and we should and we should be killing jihadis, right? That we're not going to negotiate with jihadis. We're not going to live peaceful peacefully with jihadis. Um, when you raise your hand and you say I'm a jihadi, that should make your life much more dangerous, uh, officially from the point of view of of the Israelis. The CIA, anyone, anyone who's part of this project. Um, but then we're back and, to Dresden, and, and, is, I, and I this think, is why I brought her up. I think we're back should, to Dresden. I, I think this mostly should be covert. I think this. I don't think we need to take credit for this. I don't think the Israelis should say we 
we dealt with the problem over here and the, the, the U.S. should say we dealt with the problem over here. Do you mean covert or do you mean clandestine? What, how are you distinguishing those? Clandestine means secret. Covert means deniable. Um, I'm not sure I understand all that you... When the CIA undertakes there. a covert operation, yeah. the idea that it, if discovered, it will be denied and that the links to the sponsor will be right. severed so that it cannot be traced back to the CIA. So in other words... It's a pretty big distinction. I just didn't yeah. know whether you were. Yeah, no, I, I don't actually. I don't know. I don't know if, if, if it's important in this case. But um, this is a, this is this this is an idea that doesn't originate with me. I think I first encountered this with um, the war correspondent uh, and journalist Robert Kaplan. Maybe I think it might, might even be before nine eleven. He he wrote on this. Um, but just the idea that we need to. That all of this has to be public. All of this has to be demonstrative. All, all, this, all of this has to be framed by speeches. Uh, that we need to declare that we're going to go to war in Iraq, right? You know, we're going to go to war in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, if, any, if my thinking about anything has changed since 9/11, the I mean, I was never I was never a supporter of the war in Iraq. I was never a critic of the war in Iraq. I never knew what to think about the war in Iraq, except. I noticed that it, was, it seemed like a catastrophic distraction from the war in Afghanistan, which I absolutely did support, um, and which was you know, a hopeless fail, failure, it certainly seems. Um, but so if, if my thinking has changed about anything, it's this, the idea that we can do this project of nation building, that like by analogy with what we did with you know, post-World War II with Germany and Japan, which are, are miracles of... of uh, resurrection, really. I mean, look at look at the enemies we had in Germany and Japan, and look at the state of the world now, right? I mean, it's just the idea that they are our friends and collaborators and have been for for virtually for as long as you know we've been alive. Um, it's, it's an amazing reboot of civilization after it, it, you know it's near destruction. Um, the idea that we can accomplish that in the Middle East and accomplish that in a Muslim culture just because we think everyone must want freedom on some level and must, you know, must want to run the same democratic code as we do and, you know, dye their fingers and say they voted. Um, I'm much more pessimistic about that project ever being fulfillable in the lifetime of anyone hearing this um, than I was. And so I think we should be very circumspect about owning anything. Because the other thing is that because all of this is seen through religious lens, on the other side. And it's all a matter of sanctities and their, their trespass, as far as the eye can see. So you bring in infidel troops, even with the best of intentions, to do anything good, and it's a, it's a sacri sacrilege worthy of the murder of non-combatants, right? So many people subscribe to this worldview, beyond just jihadists, that you just can't... It, it, the, the project is over with the best of intentions even before it starts. So I, I think... Again, this is, and I, I say this as, as someone who um, doesn't know all that I'm getting wrong here, at least pragmatically. Like I don't know, I don't, in terms of co covert or clandestine operations, how you go about killing jihadists wherever they exist. Um, you know, we should get as good as we can get at that. We should get as good as we can get at that. And so, so like, so the leaders of Hamas in Qatar, yeah, those those guys, the clock should be ticking on those guys. It right? is. Yeah. So, it, that, but, but that's that, a, so that's the most important piece from my point of view. 
jihad, as a job description, jihadism has to be failed. But these people aren't ca- cowards. These people who organize this I, expect yeah. to die. So one okay. of the things that, that we say we, is we that should fulfill they're that cowards, they're cowardly. It's not true. I would, and, I would never say that. No one, that, no one yeah. has said that. Say, Eric, is, let's stop arguing with stuff sorry, that's not being said. As the old joke goes, Sam, you know, what's the difference between a moderate Muslim and a jihadi? Um, the harassment of his sister at an Israeli checkpoint. You know, the problem is you can't just go around killing jihadis because a lot of people express support for jihad who are never going to pick up a gun or strap right. themselves so, to, so, to the so suicide. So that's, that's a distinction I'm making. I mean, there, there are people who in term, the other very depressing thing is that if we, and we have poll results going back now decades, when you ask Muslim communities, not just in the Muslim world, but in the West, what's your level of support for suicide bombing in defense of Islam, right? The numbers are awful, right? And so that's not what I'm, I'm talking about the people who are actually deciding to be jihadis. They're going to get up tomorrow morning to, and, and their so, goal, their, their job is, how do I kill when infidels? When did suicide how do I bombing in Islam start? What was that? When did suicide bombing in Islam start? This is not, we don't have to talk about no, the Tamil no, no. Tigers. I'm telling and, you. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a tactic. It started with the Beirut barracks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're talking about a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah, but bombs are a relatively no, recent phenomenon. No, no, there phenomenon. was the golden age of, of hijacking before that. I'm not, I'm not making any excuses for it. I'm trying to say that you're talking about something of such consequence. The idea that we should if I take covert, that we should have a, an official policy of trying to identify people who are jihadi, whatever that means, which is very complicated. They, they identify themselves, right? They, Sam, they, they literally move I, I, to I Syria. Who, I had a friend in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who you would have identified as a jihadi. And he said to me, once you go to Israel, we will never be friends again. We will never speak. Uh, I will have to hate you, blah, 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 blah. He was the one who told me about the hadith. With the, he says, you know, remember that this is the tree that is the tree of the Jews that will hide you when the earth cries for your blood. It's an incredible mindset. I'm, you and I are allied on that. It's a mindset that Americans have difficulty thinking through. But what you're talking about, when you talk about the decision boundary of which jihadis to kill. Yeah, so err on the side of conservative, Right. I'm just saying we have to recognize we're in a we're in a hot war. Sam, I think this with, is the with same jihadis. problem that you're having with Trump and and other things, which is you are being invited into the abyss. You're not understanding. But wait, let me just clarify what I'm recommending here, because if you're not understanding it, the audience isn't understanding it. What I'm saying is much more conservative, at least in my view, with respect to collateral damage and the and the and the sure. ethics of, of warfare than what is likely to be happening. Certainly, what's what what I think is likely to happen in Gaza, right? I think we should. The, the, you want a lot of targeted surgical hold stuff. Up. Yeah. Two things. First of all, let's let Sam finish. And the second thing is, Eric, I want to hear a positive proposition from you because you're kind of positioning yourself in a critique place from which it's much easier to operate. So let Sam finish his point, and then I want to hear from you what you think we should do because otherwise it's kind of asymmetrical. Right. So go, Sam. So. Our progress morally as a civilization, especially in the West, as a global civilization, but but especially in the West, has been on many fronts, but one crucial front is that we have become more and more uncomfortable in taking innocent life, however defensively, when we wage war, right? So, so collateral damage, is it's, it's, that phrase is a euphemism, 
that hides just these the, the ghastliest outcomes where you have, you know, children orphaned and children blown up and every permutation of that that horror. And we, because we've become more and more transparent to ourselves in how we wage war, we are increasingly less and less capable of waging war the way we did in, in World War II and, and, and Vietnam. And, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing until it isn't, right? I mean, I, I can imagine us getting into a war where we have to finally say, fuck it, we, we, have, to, we have to roll back our moral compass to 1945 because this enemy is hiding behind so many beautiful, blonde-haired little girls all those girls are going to die. Otherwise, we all die, right? So, like that's that's conceivable to me, but we—I certainly hope we don't have a future like that. And so, I think we should have a bias toward being more and more compassionate, more and more scrupulous, more and more aware of how intolerable it is for, in this case, completely innocent families in Gaza to have 500-pound bombs dropped on their heads. Right? I mean, it's just—it's. It's completely unacceptable. The details are unacceptable. And I, I don't share your view that if we just saw more of the imagery, that would help us calibrate here because the imagery is so provocative. The imagery of a dead baby being pulled out of rubble is so provocative. It's impossible to think about what should happen in the world on the basis of that data point, right? That doesn't guide you. That just confounds you. Um, and so I think what I'm, what, I, what I'm arguing for, and again, I don't understand the practicalities of this. I mean, we need to bring in, you know, Delta Force and the CIA and people who actually know how you do things on that front to, to know what's possible. But I think, yes, anyone who joins a jihadist organization who's in the business of waging jihad, right, that should be a death sentence. That should be, that should be suicide. Right, we should figure out how to make that within the within the the, the 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 possibilities here. We should figure out how to make that so. And I mean, so we have our friend Douglas Murray, who you know we both love, and who's who's incredibly courageous and wise on on this particular front. Um, he's walking around saying that anyone who supports Hamas, right, even just anyone who gets out on the sidewalk and and, and stands on one of these signs, um, as they have in in uh, this week. Uh, supporting what happened in in Israel, those people should lose their citizenship and be evicted from the UK, right? And I try to map that onto your free speech concerns in the US. How how practical is that? How ethical My is that? My free speech yeah. concerns. Yeah. Well, just so you know, guys, yeah. Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organization in, in the, the UK. UK. Yeah. Therefore, to express support for it is a crime. Yeah. Okay, so okay, but but like try to map that onto the American context. Sure. Right? We've got we've got Stanford students who are effectively those people, right? Not only are we kicking them out of Stanford, which I could sort of support. I mean, there's more to talk about there, but like. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain form of cancel culture that that w- would uh, make some sense to me at this moment. But on Douglas's account, we should just send them to Gaza, right? Just drop them in Gaza and say, "Good luck. This is what this is what you wanted. This is your worldview." Um, okay, that's an, when you're talking about extreme derangements of our civil society and our politics and our our, uh, our way of life. And, and, and boundary problems, how do we, you know, like, like just what sort of, what constitutes support for Hamas in, in, in these last seven days, right, on social media and, and on the quad? 
uh, it's an impossible problem. So you can be as judicious as you want to be. I just and I and I would advocate that. But I think we have to recognize euphemisms aside that that terrorism is not our problem. Jihadism is our problem, and it's not that we it's not that we don't have other problems. North Korea is also a problem. The total, other totalizing dogmas are also a problem. This is a very specific problem that is not going away. It will be with us for as long as we're alive and as long as our kids are alive. Great. So, Eric, what is your vision for how we start My positive vision so that Sam... Okay, look, because you asked for it, I think in all of the appearances, I've never actually shared this publicly, Um, but you're forcing the issue and I'm not hiding from it. It's just... If we don't do anything different, we, we're going to get what Hamas wanted. So the first of all, I mean, it's just, the level of disagreement is very weird because it's 100% agreement on all sorts of factual things that you and I agree on. Um, but no, the, the pictures really do matter because when you pull a baby out of the rubble, the key question is, is that rubble due to Hamas or is that rubble due to the person who dropped the bomb, right? So we have this concept of suicide by cop Mm-hmm. You're about to see suicide by cop or infanticide by cop or Munchausen by proxy via cop where the cop is the IDF. Agreed. Okay. If you want a positive vision, the baseline is Israel's going to flatten North Gaza and there's going to be tons of death and destruction. And I, want, I would love to stop it. The right thing to have done, in my opinion, which will not be popular, which will be much more hated by Arabs than, what I, than the idea of killing uh, families uh, through collateral damage. It's very simple. I know. I know where you're going. I, I think I've read your mind. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. Israel has a claim on a lot of land that it controls, and the Arabs have a claim on the same land. It's two competing claims. If you take the Israeli claim, you say, "Look, this land is ours," but we are not pigs, and we are not so attached to this land, and we are not so blind to your needs that we would not give you a portion of land that we consider to be ours because it comes from our tradition. We have a schedule. If you want to live as brothers in peace, you know, there are arguments between brothers and families, but if you want a prosperous state, you go this many days without any loss of life due to terror, jihad, or any of these things. And we will cede this land to your future state. So that they're guaranteed that there will be a Palestine, even though we consider the land to be ours. You're interested in rape? Here's how many acres we will annex. You interested in murder? You interested in blowing up families? You want to take an egged bus over a cliff? Whatever it is that you're thinking about, here's the schedule of the acreage that you will lose. We will have an annexing ceremony and we will name it after your victims. Whatever town, whatever settlement that we're going to put in that, and it'll be permanently a part of Israel. And so that way, when you do something to us where you're begging us to kill you and your children, to blow up your buildings, to bulldoze your houses, we're not going to fall for it anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony. And what we're going to see is a larger and larger and larger state of Israel as your moronic death cult continues to grind against innocent life. So rather than have a single death, you're going to have a transfer of acreage. Okay? But that 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 entails a lot of death. Right. You're you're, you're taking that acreage with tanks. Because every time 
first of all, there's a lot of land that Israel already controls that doesn't need to be taken by a tank. You have a different situation in Gaza in particular, right? So Gaza, first of all, was is not occupied. It was given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's controlled in terms of its borders, but when you make videos showing how, oh, look, you know, we dug up all these pipes, we figured out how to get over the fence with paragliders, et cetera, et cetera, you understand now why uh, the borders are being controlled. So yes, there's a certain amount that you have to do, but you can certainly minimize this. If suddenly a giant chunk of land disappeared from the West Bank, and that was the response, and nobody died, for example. But how, there's, there's, there are people on that land. I mean, how, how, how does nobody die? Well, first of all, people have been transferred from land. Second of all, there are chunks of land, you know, there are settlements and things that have not yet been formally annexed to Israel. I'm, I, what I'm trying to say, Sam, is that you're speaking to somebody who speaks only the language of violence. And the, the thing that I don't know how to communicate is I have a rule that I can't care about somebody else's children more than they care about their children. They, they speak a different, they speak a, there's even a more important language, which is the lang, language of religious symbols. I, this is where I thought you were going. I was, um, it turns out telepathy isn't real. Or I don't know. <laughs> because, um, no, actually I was going there, but I saw what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they care much more about buildings than about their children. Right? I mean, if you really want to see the, the wheels come off, Israel could say, listen, return the hostages in 48 hours or we blow up the Dome of the Rock, right? And they just rig that building to explode. What do you think happens? The entire world lights up, right? I mean, like we're talking about, it's like that's, that's Armageddon, right? Over a building, right? This is, it's completely crazy. It's all upside down. The ethics of this are completely Sorry, you, upside down. You don't mean buildings because there are plenty of apartment buildings where Hamas has, you know, headquarters and builds rockets. No, I'm you talking about the specific- Dome of the Rock, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but like if you're going to talk about emotional leverage, that's the point of emotional leverage. That's, that's more than we're going to kill all your kids. That we're going to kill this one empty building, right? Sorry, and I don't know where we are exactly. I'm just saying that that, like, that, that is, if you're talking about, this, this is where I thought you were going, that, that I mean, Israel, Israel does not have leverage saying we're, just, we're going to go back and take Gaza for ourselves or we're going to take more of the West Bank. That's not leverage. The, the, the whole place about, is as Sam? big that's as its living true. room. No, it's not it's, true. It's a tiny... Sam, pl- if you annex land to Israel, I guarantee you the world will freak out. It won't freak out as if you threatened Al-Aqsa. And I don't even want to talk about this because I don't want to get in, involved. I'm not saying I recommend that. I'm saying that that is, that is how upside down the situation is. That would be the most provocative thing they could possibly do that's, that's actually under their control. Let's interrogate this idea of annexing land because I think Sam's criticism that I hear, Sam's critique rather, that I hear and agree with is that if you start annexing land, you are going to have to do it by force, which is when you're back to square one. Israel is the occupier state, flattening cities, killing babies, etc. How is that different to where we are now? I'm trying to say that in the cycle of violence, what is sought by the architects of murder, misery, and horror is reprisal, physical kinetic reprisal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm saying deny them that. But you're not going to deny them that. You're going to make them, the jihadis, if we accept that they exist, which of course they do, they are going to scupper that process with everything they have by so committing that they do, and so that you're 
And then you're going to have to annex land on which Palestinians live, in which case you're back to collateral damage. Again, occupier. Claim, look, you've got a terrible situation, okay? We all agree. I, I'm not coming up with this as th this is what to do when you have two normal foes that are d in dispute over mineral resources. Mm -hmm. We know what that is. This is not that. This is, pl I want, please flatten our, our apartment buildings. So that we can pull the babies from the rubble. We have the, we have the cameras and we know how to do this in 4K, right? This is a completely different sort of an enemy. And my claim is the, the story of Israel exercising power over Arabs who are not Israeli citizens is a cancerous story. And if Israel does not figure out how to get out of that story, even to the point where it's got a state that it has to go up against in a war, and I agree with Sam that we fetishize now a level of morality due to professional um, military uh, ethics that is probably unsustainable in actual war between, between comparable rivals. We're going to have to get a lot less squeamish. People are going to die. This is what happens in war. There's always collateral damage. And the situation that I want, and you know, again, I, this isn't particularly good for this, this 50th anniversary attack of the Yom Kippur War. I wanted this in place 20 years ago. Nobody would listen. And that was, you know, based much more around blowing up a pizza parlor. You know, okay, great. So there's land that we've always thought was ours and we're going to formally take it and we're not going to have a reprisal and we're not going to have a, a, a bulldozer knock over a house. Because Israel is being induced into a game theory according to the local rules of the Middle East and then broadcast into a somewhat anti-Semitic West, um, this is the strategy of the Arabs in this situation, which is how to get Israel to play by local rules of the Middle East for exports into a, a sophisticated, uh, somewhat you know, mildly anti-Semitic West uh, for people particularly on the left who uh, don't particularly like Jews uh, and um, want to be in, in, engaged in some sort of um, recapitulation of the civil rights era or South African apartheid. I agree with that 100%. But that does not mean that the solution you proposed works. And that's the thing that we're talking about. You just have to imagine what happens when you grab all that land. Right. Yeah. Then, where, then Israel just has different borders, Israel but they're still at war with jihadists and, and you, Hamas. You're going to be at war with jihadists forever, Sam. That's not going to end. And, and to be honest, and I can't believe we're not pushing back on this, the idea of killing people with sympathies, with jihadi ideology. I know, I said That's jihadists. Said. No. I said killing said. jihadists. Yeah. Sympathies, it was sympathies for jihadists. You and said, you got, if I join a jihadi organization, does yeah. that make me a jihadi? Well, yeah, well I mean, it depends. Would we have killed Majid. Let's, let's, let's make it clear. No, he wasn't, a, I mean, he wasn't a, that wasn't a jihadist organization. He wasn't a jihadi. No. Okay. Um, I mean, so it's, the book I, I wrote with Majid based on this, you know, verbal debate we had, uh, Islam and the Future of Tolerance is there to be seen, and, and Majid makes uh, lots of interesting distinctions between jihadists, Islam, jihadists are a subset of Islamists, but they're also revolutionary Islamists who don't, who aren't, you know, signing up to be suicide bombers, and there's also Islamists who 
are not inclined to use violence. They're, they're inclined to use the democratic process in order to, to impose Sharia law, but, it's, but it's, uh, they're very patient, and it's, they, they don't support al-Qaeda, and they don't support ISIS, etc. cetera. Uh, and then there are conservative Muslims who don't support any of that, but they're still way more conservative than you'd want them to be when you're talking about things like honor killing or the rights of women, or, et cetera. So a lot to talk about. I'm talking about the people who are committed to waging jihad, who's like, that's their, that's their gig now, right? No, if, if the, yeah. the idea is that there's a bright line, which is that you own multiple suicide vests, you know, or, or, or even though you've never put one on, but you're, you're certainly... You know, no, but like, but like the yeah, the leaders of Hamas who are who are just sitting in Qatar right now, right? Like that. The, Do you those think those should be the long natural lives ahead of them? I, I I certainly hope not, right? But like, but that's the the, the front line for me is there. It's not. Okay, I, I, I already it, assume that those people are know that they're going to die at Israeli well, hands. You know, I, well, I don't know. I mean, we have, we have a non-assassination policy, right? In we, in, we the U.S. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, democratic societies generally Sorry, would, would say that Israel has a non-assassination no, policy. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying, but, but the, it would be disavowed. It's anathema given our, our current. Again, I'm not even. I'm not even sure I know the rules of war that that would govern Israel now. But um, you need a military lawyer to to talk about the details here. I, what I'm saying is that we should recognize who the enemy actually is. And what the problem actually is, and it's not that it's a matter of people with understandable, rational grievances who've just been pushed too far. And if you could only cater to their to their demand, is going to be killed. Yeah, well, so but that that would be a good thing, right? Nobody's arguing that. Okay, but there there are jihadists in a hundred countries. Right. I understand that. So I'm trying so, to figure out this idea yeah, so, whether the CIA or the Mossad, because those are two very different organizations that work together. They should be unified on this front. We should recognize that jihadism is a non-starter for the future of, of a, a, a global civilization assume that, that works. The, assume that the people in our covert agencies already know that. Well, I, I don't know if that's a safe assumption, but that, uh, but that would be... Do you remember the Abu Dhabi, I think it was Abu Dhabi video... The guy checks into a hotel, and then yeah. all the Israeli teams descend, and they yeah, track yeah, all of yeah. them in and all of them out. Okay, but given the failure of the IDF to to re- not even prevent, even respond to what happened last week, I mean, get me. It's just. Well, what do you mean failure to respond? It hasn't happened yet. No, no. What happened for in the first twenty four hours? What did what, you expect? What, what, what was I? What, everyone was expecting. A better. No one was expecting people to be hiding in their houses for 24 hours, begging to be rescued by an IDF that didn't seem not to exist, right? I mean, this is this is a colossal. It's a colossal intelligence failure. It's a it's a, it's a failure to put, to even know what's happening at the border. It's a failure to respond to an emergency once it once it was unfolding. Do you unfolding. know how degraded Israel is? Okay, but that's. That's my point. So you're asking me to assume that the Mossad and the CIA have this well in this assassination program that I'm wishing for for Christmas well in hand. I can't make Sorry, that. Assu- I, be- I believe I can't make that assumption when when you have a 1,500 jihadis come yeah, across so the border. Guys, you need to let each other talk. And and there's no response, right? Because everyone, you know, because it's Shabbat and everyone's doing some doing something else, right? It's it's, it's um, I don't think we can take for granted. 
that we have this problem, that, 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 that enough people understand what the problem actually is? Because there's so many euphemisms and so much political correctness and so much multicultural bullshit confounding a very clear discrimination of, uh, that, that relates to the power of specific ideas, right? If you, you get one issue of Dabiq, you should understand who the enemy is, right? And in my experience, in talking to people, especially, you know, overeducated academics, you know, you talk to an anthropologist about Guilty. this, you just get a wall of, of confusion, right? Um, so hopefully, again, I don't know, I don't know how clear anyone's thinking is when in the immediate aftermath of women, of young women being, being raped and stolen as hostages from a peace rave, you have their, their counterparts at Harvard and Stanford celebrating it, right? Like, so, so I just, I, I don't think we can assume people know what the hell is going on and, and, and what they should be motivated to pay attention to now. And so that's why, if, if conversations like this have any value, sure. it's in clarifying those, those variables. One thing that I wanted to touch on very quickly is you said something very interesting, which is, do you know how degraded Israel is? And I don't think people understand that, and I certainly don't. So could you just expand on that, please, Eric? Sure. It is my belief that we have an idea that the U.S. is the superpower that won World War II. And I claim that that is not. We are not the same country that won World War II. We are so different from that country. Agreed. We are also different from the superpower that we were during the Cold War. Uh, unfortunately, we have incredible capabilities, particularly due to our technology, and we have some sort of problem in our own ability to project power that was manifest, let's say, in the pullout from Afghanistan, particularly with respect to you know, abandoning the base in the wrong order of operations. The people who carry out certain, who are tasked with carrying out certain operations are at different levels of readiness. Now, the big issue between 67 in, in Israel and the Six-Day War and the 73 Yom Kippur War is that Israel felt very, very vulnerable before 867 and then sort of reveals its military brilliance and power uh, in 67. And then a short six years later, it is caught unprepared. The wrong image of its foes, um, the, you know, the Arabs are always weak. They'll always surrender. They don't want to fight, blah, blah, blah. They don't have the, the wherewithal. Okay, well, those beliefs completely cost Israel in 73. This is a recapitulation, both directly and indirectly, of the 73 situation, where we find out that Israel is not the Israel that we thought it was. And as a result, it's going through a psychological... Sam, you don't remember 73, do you? I do Much? not. No. So I remember, you know, I remember it a little bit. It was, it was totally shocking. Right now, I think what we found is, is that parts of the IDF are greatly degraded, and Israel was going through incredibly stupid internal strife over Netanyahu right before this. And, you know, I hear about intelligence failure. I'm sorry. I, I, it's like I, I'm not part of the modern world. It's not an intelligence failure. 
you set a reminder that your grandmother is turning 97 on your calendar. So it comes up two days ahead of time. So you remember to call. You don't set a reminder on the 50th anniversary of the greatest surprise in modern times in modern Israel. I, I just, it's almost to the day. It's like people, you know, I think Peter Thiel was the person who pointed out to me that the Battle of Vienna, you know, happened on September 11th or something like this. We should have a reminder on all of these things having nothing to do with intelligence. This is a complete screw-up. And it's reflective of the fact that, and I'm very concerned about this, I don't think the U.S. is the U.S. it thinks itself to be. I don't think that Israel is the powerhouse that it thinks itself to be. It may get there in two months. It may be that it's not so degraded that it can't snap out of it. But I'm very concerned, you know, we're, we're mostly seemingly, you know, uh, troubled by whether or not our, our SEAL Team 6 is transgender enough. Um, we have to recognize that we have world responsibilities. We have several politicians who want us to cultically retreat into ourselves in a, in a multipolar thermonuclear world with new biological capabilities. I've been at the top of my lungs screaming. Sam took me to, to Sydney, Australia, where I got up on stage and said, we need to be exploding uh, rare thermonuclear weapons above ground so people remind themselves of how dangerous the world has become. But we're in some sort of complacency in which we, we think Israel is this powerhouse, but it isn't. And, you know, it's also the case that the human intelligence has probably degraded because Operation Magic Carpet um, and the like pulled Jews out of all of these places that natively spoke uh, all of these uh, languages in Muslim lands. So you could pull, an, you know, an Eli Cohen and have an Egyptian Jew infiltrate the Syrian high command way back when. But how many, how many Jews can you recruit? How many Jews are currently operating secretly inside of Gaza with access to Hamas. Hamas is bragging that only five people knew the date and time, you know, of this attack. And so, you know, my, my concern is, is that Israel is much more vulnerable because it isn't the state it thinks itself to be, which is exactly where it was in 1973, and it's not a coincidence that they picked the exact anniversary. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree with all of those concerns. Um I mean, the one thing I actually am confused about, I mean, so you raised the concept once and we haven't talked about it. I'm not, I'm not confused about jihadism and I, I can't pretend to be confused about it, but um, <laughs> anti-Semitism I, I find genuinely confusing. I, 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 Why? I, just the, the, the dynamics of it, the fact that even in the immediate aftermath of something like this, it is operative. In the, in the places that it's operative, I mean, again, at Harvard, at Stanford. Sam, are you really confused about that? Yeah. Because Eric yeah. actually disagrees with me on this, and I want to hear what you have to say, because we, we had a private conversation about it that we didn't get to finish. But isn't this the thing that all four of us have been talking about and have been concerned about is woke, call it what you want, ideology, worldview, a set of disconnected slogans, whatever. The central core of it is oppressor oppressed dynamics and jews where do they land on that but but not in in this case i mean so like it's oh no it's the oppressor it's the oppressor being slain by the oppressed is right. the argument right, right. so no, no. it makes perfect sense that you'd celebrate that yeah it doesn't uh well first of all within this anti-semitism of- was just as real even in america 
when the crematory of Auschwitz were still smoking, right? I mean, literally, you have anti-Semitic speeches on the floor of the Senate. You read uh, David Wyman's book, um, The Abandonment of the Jews, right? It's just, it's just, it's, it's just this catalog of, of kind of the ambient anti-Semitism in the U.S. during the Holocaust and, and after. Um, so it's like just the, the durability of this animus, whether the Jews are on top or whether they're obviously on the bottom. I mean, literally, whether they're, they're, they're uh, practically eradicated. Um, I just find, yes, I, I understand it's, it's historical origins and they, they are actually theological. I mean, so it is Christian and Muslim theology that get that, that cashes, cashes it out ultimately. But I just don't understand there, there so many people are anti-Semitic and are interested in the idea that, you know, that there's some Jewish conspiracy that's controlling everything or, and the Jews are, you know, the, like if you're, if you're very far on the right, the Jews are not white, you know, so if you're, if you're white supremacist, the Jews are not white and therefore they're uh, the object of your bigotry. But if you go far enough left, the Jews are extra white, you know, extra privileged, uh, and therefore um, they lose in this in this victimology game. Um, it's just the fact that it's so well subscribed. Whatever changes on the landscape, I find perplexing. Thomas Sowell has a very good sorry, Francis. Yeah. Just yeah. this one, yeah. and then you go. He has a very good explanation. He has a chapter in uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals called "Are Jews Generic," mm-hmm. and he talks about middlemen minorities all over the world, always finding themselves uh, in this situation because of the role they fill in society, of the jobs that they do, uh, being middlemen. It, they're simultaneously misunderstood by the larger society and also... So this is, this is the, the confusion that Kanye had about his his agents and <laughs> managers. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Um, where is Kanye, everybody? Should we oh, well, Kanye he's also Freud's guest. If, we, if, if he was sitting here, this, this yeah. episode would get a lot more views, yeah. let's be honest. But, but to me, it's anti-Semitism comes from a lack of control in people's lives. Now, if you look at, for instance, the far left, they would say the Jews are in control of the banking system. The Jews, that's what the Jews control. If you look at the far right now, the, the new... Uh, conspiracy theory is a great replacement theory. And what is that? The fact that the Jews are in control Mm. of Muslims coming to the the West because they want to er eradicate white people. I mean, it's obviously completely (laughs) nonsensical, but this is what these people believe. But there's there's so few Jews. And so that like, even even in an area where they're massively overrepresented, right? I mean, even among Nobel laureates in physics, right? They're still a minority. There's like it's not. They're not a majority of anything, and so the idea that they're that they're, that they're in control, is just uh, it's moronic. But yeah, that's what these people believe, and they believe that you know that this group, because that's what a lot of conspiracy theories come down to. This group are in control, whether it's a World Economic Forum, whether it's Jewish people. Mm. But it's people who feel that they have, no contr- they have no control over their own lives. They are powerless. Therefore, somebody else must have the power. Therefore, it's Jewish people. Go on. Speaking Go on. as a Jew. Do you understand it, Eric? Well, better, better than this. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, be- what a loving insult. <laughs> uh, not, not meant... I'm kidding. Yeah, go for it, please. 
there is a spectrum of anti-Semitism, and we're talking about it. We're talking about the whole rainbow at the moment, and this sort of mutant rainbow has very different origins. So the reason calling it woke doesn't really point to the fact that it's revolutionary. It's violent revolutionary thinking. That's the what's behind woke. Mm-hmm. The idea is we have a selling, we have a campaign and our campaign is that oppression leads to poverty. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a real problem when you've got a very clearly oppressed group that is not poor mm-hmm. because that breaks the entire syllogism um, that is being used to sign people up. Mm-hmm. So the the radical revolutionary left has to hate Jews because they are the counterexample that gives the lie to the entire program. And so that is why they have to, you have to have a, a position on, on the Jews from the far from the revolutionary left. Do they hate Japanese Americans as much? Well, I was going to say over, overse- overseas Chinese uh, Parsis, you know, the, the, but that's the, because they're middlemen minorities. That was what, my what, point. What, okay. was, we can come back to this, but okay. I was going to say then so on I the right, you have a different situation. For example, people on the right who are anti, uh, I keep thinking about doing a show called "My Friends the Anti Semites" because I am actually in dialogue with many of them, um, not to name names, and a lot of them are very supportive, in fact, of Israel right now. Because their issue is, who came up with ethno-nationalism? That Swedes caring about Sweden uh, is ethno-nationalism? F you. You know, people have a right to be in their country without somebody saying, oh, that's just blood and soil like from the Nazis. So their feeling is, how can you have an, a state that is got a Jewish star on its flag and not bring up ethno-nationalism. So these are the people that crowd your Twitter uh, comments with, you know, for me, but not for thee. Mm-hmm. That's, their, that's their line. So their feeling is, hey, you should go defend yourself and, and get these killers, um, and you should go back home to Israel where you belong, right? And so that's totally different than the left-wing thing. But now the question has to do with... Um, a word that needs to be taken out of our vocabulary, which is underrepresented. Now, underrepresented, we talk about an underrepresented minority. I don't know why somebody's underrepresented. Um, between 1987 and the start of the Boston Marathon in 1897, I don't think there were any Kenyans or Ethiopians who won the Boston Marathon. And then after 1987, it's basically straight Kenyan, Ethiopian, occasionally, you know, a Japanese guy. Um, are, are they, are Kenyans and Ethiopians overrepresented or the rest of us underrepresented? Well, you're holding a competition that's basically anybody can start and anybody can finish. And some people seem to be better than others. All right. Now, if you look at you know, the so-called JQ, which is the Jewish question. Why are there so many Jews in all of these powerful positions? Uh, If you believe in proportional representation, then Jews are overrepresented. And so you have to, if you believe in underrepresented minorities, you have to get rid of the overrepresented minority. So these are all these language traps and language games. And people fear, how can there be a people that look more or less like they're of European descent 
who often have names that don't tell you who they are, like McCormick or something like that, um, who are privately subscribed to some sort of secret rhizome uh, in a world in which nothing adds up. So particularly right now, anti-Semitism is always going to get bad when people can see that they're being lied to at scale. I don't care who's doing the lying at scale. The Jews will be assumed to be behind it. Yeah, that, that part is mysterious to me. I mean, that could Same just more. be legacy code. This, we, just, we had the protocols, the elders of Zion, and then that just got grandfathered in so that so people resort to that. But the idea that that would be the story that everyone reverts to. Say more. Well, like why, why the Jews under those conditions? You, say, you, you, you said it was just a, as though it, we could just assume this, this, this If you look sense. at, for example, who founded Facebook and who founded Google, right? Tech giants. Um, you've got Jews in both situations. If you imagine, okay, so our electronic communication uh, with each other is largely mediated, our ability to search, for example. So if I put in American inventors and only black faces come up at Google, I know that somebody's put code in there to make it appear that most of the inventors in American history are, are black. Who would do such a thing? Like it's such a it's such an obvious bad faith thing to do on a search engine, and then of course it's going to be well, it's uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, you know, or if Mark Zuckerberg doesn't allow a story to circulate or whatever. And so, in part, be, be, and by the way, you may start to see this with Indian Americans. There's this very quiet, uh, you know, to, to use the vernacular of our day, uh, Indian Americans are having a moment. Um. And you're suddenly going to realize that you don't understand what's going on with the BJP. You don't know who the Shiv Sena are. You have no idea what Indian Americans care about. And suddenly they're in all these powerful political positions. So when you have a powerful minority, and particularly one that's visually indistinguishable from others, there's always going to be a fear that because you have high-ranking people in media, banking, um, universities, all of these, you know, fantastically uh, successful Jewish populations are always going to be on the hook for the fact that people can see that their information is distorted. And why aren't you successful, Eric? Well, you know, the, the old, the old uh, answer I gave Joe Rogan when he asked me about why one quarter of 1% of the world's population would get 25% of the physics Nobel Prize is that we cheated physics. Um, <laughs> but nobody believes that. You know, I think one way of answering this question is, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why 99 of the top 100 chess players uh, in open competition are male. Um, it, it feels like a trap to answer the question. I would say that our culture is very clear that if we want to survive, we have to do really, really well and we have to contribute back. So as a diaspora culture, in part, our strategy is... Uh, over-succeed, over-contribute to your host society. Otherwise, we can't um, make our equation work. So in part, it's a, it's a question of anthropics. You're only asking the supposed JQ um, because there are still Jews after this many thousand years, and the strategy works. And, you know, just go... If you're in the U.S., for example, go look at who donated the wings of your local hospitals and tell me what the last names are, and I guarantee you that some of them are going to be Jewish no matter where you are. So in part... Um, this is how we live. 
we live by being a net benefit to the societies in which we reside. And we drive ourselves incredibly hard knowing that we're always going to be fighting anti-Semitism. So the example I was going to give is during COVID, I didn't understand that um, our family's reaction was use the time in, you know, indoors to learn as much as you can, push yourself as hard as you possibly can, uh, would be badly received in the outside world, which is like, of course you're doing that because you're in a position of privilege. And you just have this attitude of, you know, for F's sake, um, if you want to look at a similar culture, uh, there's a female comedian named Zarna Garg who uh, is explaining sort of the Indian tiger mom approach to parenting her own children. You cannot major in, in history. You can't major in art. Uh, you're going to major in computer science. This sort of drive to, um, to excel and succeed is very, very costly. And... I understand a culture that, that doesn't push their kids as hard. But to be honest, if the Jews are going to survive, they have to compete. They have to do very, very well in the competition, and they have to give back. And anyone who attempts to talk about proportional representation is fundamentally messing with the Jewish equation for survival. If we cannot compete, succeed, and give back, uh, we have a serious problem as Jews. What about IQ? What about it? I have heard that different groups have different IQs. I've heard the same thing. And Ashkenazi Jews, I have heard, have a higher IQ than the average. You know, no offense to that. I think what you really want to say is, is there anything to Jewish genetics? And gosh, I would hope so, um, because otherwise we don't know anything about genetics. Why can I spit in a tube and it tells me what my belief structure is and what language I pray on Friday night? It's, you know, clearly um, it's both a... A genetic group and a belief structure that have co-traveled. Um, but for IQ, I always find this really strange. IQ is just not that interesting uh, in the upper reaches. So I, I'm, I'm totally up for believing that Jews have a genetic advantage, but I don't think that a few extra IQ points accounts for the level of creativity and the level of contribution. I think IQ is really powerful below 100. It's much less powerful above 100. Uh, this is sort of a, something that Nassim Taleb uh, and I you know, have discussed. Um, the fetish about the fact that it's measurable causes this real problem because it's, it's a nightmare indicator. It's good enough to suggest that something is very real, that can be tracked, that has a genetic component, but it's not good enough to explain creativity. And I think that, for example, if you talk, if I talk to my East Asian friends, a lot of them are, uh, are confused. And they say things like, where does Jewish creativity come from? We also are supposed to have very high IQs. And we're still in a leader-follower mode. How is it that we get into this Jewish creativity mode? So I, I happen to think that because people are dissuaded from talking about IQ, because they're dissuaded from talking about genetics, uh, they they want to focus on IQ as if it is intelligence, which it is definitely is not. It has it's a component. It's an, it's related to intelligence, but it isn't. And then you have this problem, which is that um, in some sense, what really matters is the creativity that uh, that co travels, and how much of that is genetic. I don't know, but it's not a terrible thing to say that people are genetically different, and that there are trade offs. You know, the the, the Jewish contribution to the National Basketball Association has been pretty meager. 
<laughs> Eric, do I you think... I blame anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> Rampant. Yeah. Do you think it's also the fact that Jews have always tended to be outsiders? And when you're, you're an outsider of a group, to a group, you're always looking in, which means that it tends towards being creative because then what you are doing is you're reflecting the society in a way that people who are a member of the in-group simply cannot. You will, there's a lot of people who say comedians tend to be outsiders. Comedians are the ones who are reflecting what is happening to the society. And Jews and comedy, I mean, they go well, together comedy, pretty well. trauma, and Jews. I mean, it's a perfect combination. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think that works because, like, Roma would be outsiders to society. And, you know, I don't think you've seen the same sorts of... Uh, behavior patterns. There's having tremend- taught the Roma, having t- having spent a lot wait, of time wait, wait, teaching wait, wait, wait. Roma, they are much more segre- They're segregated. They're not really part of society in the way that Jews are. Hmm. There's also a lot of creativity in that culture, but without the same, you know, in-system accomplishment. I yeah. think that Jews tend to be in-system. They tend to work within the structures that they find. And, you know, my wife being from the Jewish community of India... You know, I have a, an opportunity to see a very different world about, you know, when, the impact of, of, let's just say, you know, the Sassoon family or the way that the Parsis mirror the Jews inside of an Indian context. So I think that, you know, that there's, I don't know why we're afraid of talking about genetics and, and cognitive ability. I don't know why we're afraid of talking about culture and cognitive ability. I don't know why we're afraid of talking about culture and drive together. But the world is not uniform. And there is a Jewish strategy. The great part of the Jewish strategy is, is that most of it is pretty much open source. And if you want to push your children really, really hard to, to survive, and if you want to tell them that you've got a dragon with, with fire, breathing fire down, down the back of your neck because you've always been oppressed and you'll never know when you have to leave very quickly on short notice, uh, you can duplicate the Jewish experience. And good luck. Sam, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? Um, Please don't say. Well, so I have I have zero interest in <laughs> IQ, as I've always said, even though I've I've gotten yeah. a lot of pain for having ever touched the topic. My, my my only interest in in differences in human intelligence, uh, as measured by IQ or, or otherwise, uh, between groups, is that we need to solve the political puzzle you just mentioned, which is. Why does anyone think that discovering these dis- these differences would be a political catastrophe? Right? We ha- we had because we know this is what we should go- we should go into the science knowing this. I'm not saying we should look for these differences, but these differences will ambush us because, insofar as we understand intelligence or anything else at the level of the brain or at the level of the genome, we will just you know 23andMe is just going to tell you that there are these differences between groups in the relevant genes, say. Um, so I'm not saying we look for these things, but we're going to be ambushed by them. And we just have to know in advance that any human trait that is governed by genetics to whatever degree is going to be, with the moment it becomes measurable, it will be at some different mean value in different populations. However you define those populations. I mean, even spurious populations. You could take Yankees fans against Red Sox fans, and there's, it will be a miracle if the hundred traits you're interested in to inventory are, have the exact same mean level across those two groups. 
Now, in, in many cases, these are just going to be spurious comparisons, but insofar as there is a, there has been a, a, a genetic kind of canalization through, throughout human history where you can look at someone and, and give a pretty good guess that they're, you know, they come from sub-Saharan Africa or from, or from the Indian subcontinent continent or Japan or Norway, and you can do that, you, you have to expect that there are going to be mean differences in traits that we find valuable. And that can't matter. I mean, the thing that, the thing we, we, we know must matter is that we are committed to political equality in all of our plural, pluralistic, secular societies, and we should be. And the fact that there's, there's some trait that we could eventually identify and, and measure that is going to be you know, a standard deviation, more or less, on average, in any given population... That's just, um, that can't matter. And what we know is that at the individual level, it, it, simply, it simply can't matter because knowing that I'm 50% Ashkenazi Jew doesn't tell you anything about my intelligence, right? Like as an individual, I still have to demonstrate that. And it's just not, and I get absolutely no credit if I'm, not, if I'm smart and not a bit smarter I get no credit for having been in one population versus another. The interesting thing is we don't have the Persian question because Persians are going to test really high. We don't have the Irish and Scottish question. We don't have the overseas Chinese question, right? We don't have the Parsi question. So I think you have to turn it around and say, look, there's a lot of asymmetry in terms of success of groups. Mm -hmm. And we only have the Jewish question, and I think that this is what I find absolutely offensive. Well, we have no, Asian, we only have the Jewish the question, question in Western Europe. But Thomas Sowell's point was that there are Jews everywhere. They're just not Jews. They're somebody else. In, in Asia, it's overseas Chinese. In the Ottoman Empire, it was, it was Armenians. You, you can go down the list, right? So there are local Jews in every area. They don't all look like you. Right, that, that's really the point. But I think the broader point with both of what you're saying and the reason that we're terrified of these conversations is that it violates the sacred man mantra of our society, which is all, we're all equal. You know, this is, this is embedded in all our conversations. This no, 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 no. Well, we're is. all political. So there's two notions of equality here that yes. we, can be, we can conflate. Political equality does not at all suggest that every person is equally talented, equally kind, equally smart. I mean, they're just you know, equal, making equal exactly. contributions but to society. But people don't make that distinction yeah. in so, their head. That's yeah. why. So Sorry, even the communists, the, the, the aphorism of communism is what? From each according to his yes. abilities to each according to his needs. Yes. The idea that we are, are somehow blank slate equal yeah. is totally new. It's, it's beyond communism. I don't know how to state That's this. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. worse than communism. Yeah. It's worse than communism. It's worse than communism. Yeah, it is. It is. And the idea that, that human beings don't vary, including by group, is just demonstrably not true. And the idea of political equality seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, was invented to address that. That's the whole right. fucking point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we know we want a society that is fair, give, and that's completely independent of the differences between people. Like, like it's just, we, we want... We want everyone to have the in terms of our ethical and political commitments. We want everyone to have every opportunity they can use, 
right? And if there's some people who can't, I mean, through no fault of the, like, there, there's someone right now being born from whatever population with whatever genetic endowment, whatever culture surrounding them waiting to improve their lives with brain damage based on just a pure accident of what happened during labor, right? So what do we do for that person? We, you know, in a, in a society where we have the bandwidth to f- just figure out how good life can be, right? Where we're not, you know, where the bombs aren't falling and we're not, we're not facing some existential threat, we know we want to marshal our resources to make life as good as possible for everyone to the degree that they can uh, have their, their hopes and dreams realized. And there, there are some very limited hopes and dreams that we need to cater to. I mean, just look at, look at make, a, you know, make a Wish Foundation, right? It's like you, got, you have kids who have pediatric cancer who've got a time horizon of six months what does a good life look like in that case? We, need, we, we know that success politically and economically for us in our society is to have the bandwidth to cater to that compassionately. Um, and that's what the project is. And figuring out what the mean value for IQ is across groups is not part yeah, of that. that. And, and it's, not an, it's not an insult to that either. If in our founding documents we have the idea that all men are created equal and we know that at that time women didn't have the vote and people held slaves, I don't think it's the case that one part of our soul cries out for equality at this more beautiful level and another part of our soul says, oh my gosh, these groups are super dangerous. They cannot accumulate more power, right? And that part of our soul we don't acknowledge, that we, are, we have our thumb on the scale trying to figure out who really shouldn't be voting, um, what information shouldn't be out in the public because it will tend to, to prejudice people. And I believe that in some sense we're just not able to be honest about our conflicts um, when we stay things like one man, one vote, and yet Wyoming gets two senators and California gets two senators. It's clearly honored in the breach. And we don't make eye contact with the fact that we are of many minds about equality and about uh, accomplishment and achievement and what constitutes fairness. And in all of those different circumstances, we only feel comfortable with the part of the conflict that we can talk about in public without being uh, eviscerated. And I, I think that we have to just be honest that we've been very uncomfortable about what is the form of equality that we are really about? And I, one of the things I love about the American project is, is that our documents were abstract enough that things that weren't honored initially in the first instantiation are honored over time because there wasn't, there wasn't an explicit clause saying that women and blacks don't count, right? And so as a result of this, you know, we, we debated should only landholders you know, be allowed to vote. Um, the headroom in the documents is the thing that we should embrace. And it's one of the reasons why the 1619 project was so dangerous is that we, we happen to have the good fortune of having wonderful documents with headroom that can mean things that weren't meant when the, when the Republic was founded. Um, and trying to figure out how to become those people that we have never been is part of the most exciting, maybe the most exciting part of the American project. Francis, we've got one more topic we can open up quickly. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So I want to deal because I want, and I want to discuss this, which is hope, because it's very easy, particularly in the landscape that we're talking about, 
social media and all the rest of it, to become pessimistic. But let's look at hope and the grounds for hope. Are you hopeful, Eric, as to the future, as to This is the, the one American- on which I go first? Yeah. Give it to Sam. And okay. Well, yeah, just this morning I read uh, a um, uh, Connor uh, Friedrichsdorf, I always forget his last name, the, the Atlantic writer, he, he wrote a piece today, uh, which struck a note of hope um, in this emergency, which I'm not sure I, I, I certainly hope he's right. So he, he said that just as uh, Joan Didion um, in one of her books, I think it was the, the White Album, I'm not sure, um, said that the Manson murders were the end of the, the official end of the 60s, right? You know, August 1969, um, all the idealism of the 60s just completely. Once you, once you have, you know, mad, wild-eyed hippies murdering people, you know, killing pregnant starlets, um, all the idealism of the 60s just evaporated, right? So um, his claim, and he's possibly right, what happened on college campuses in response to what happened in Israel was the end of the great awakening in his phrasing. It's like, like, like we, all of us are waiting for the pendulum to swing back from this, this just crazily eccentric distortion of ethics and political intuitions on the far left. And he's, uh, he's arguing that that bell just rang this week. And uh, I certainly hope that's correct, because the, the, the moral, not just untenability, the, just the, the, the abomination we're witnessing, where you have the same people who are equally exercised over you know, Halloween costumes that, that are cultural appropri- appropriation, and they're defending what happened uh, in Israel last week. It's... Um, that, you know, that dissonance, I think, is, is something we need to not lose sight of at, uh, culture-wide. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think if, if, that hap- if that happens, I think that would be a very, a very good thing. I mean, it would, it would be a very good thing for speaking locally for American politics. To, I mean, we have, we, we have a, you know, 15 months or so of an election cycle that many of us worry could be uh, – truly ugly and divisive and to not have a crazy having a decreasingly crazy far left and democratic party as a result would be a, would be a good thing if you ask me just picking up from the Joan Didion reference if you if you look at the passage it is the white album which carefully what she says is is that there was the sense that someone was going to go too far Right, so she's really talking about a period between 1967 and 1969. It's really only sort of two or three years when the 60s uh, were at that fever pitch, and then it. She says that it ends at that moment. Um, it's one of the most beautiful essays I've ever read about our time, but I don't think it's accurate. I think that we've been in this probably since the Ruslan Ali dear colleague letter in. 2011. It's now 2023. Uh, This has been going wrong for a lot longer. It's much more deeply enmeshed in our society. I don't know that the hippies at the free clinic in San Francisco were akin to the uh, administrators in the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, 
substrate that is now in, infesting all of our universities. Uh, when it comes to hope, to be honest, one of the most hopeful things that happened, and I, I hate to put it in these terms, was the death of Diane Feinstein. And I don't, I'm not dancing on her grave. I didn't particularly have any strong feelings except for the fact that she was clearly not able to do her job and was being propped up by the system. And so without feeling good about the fact that someone died, um, although she lived a long life, there is the sense that we will never get rid of Nancy Pelosi. We will never get rid of Mitch McConnell. We will never be free of uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee in the form of Biden and Trump. And of course, demography is going to have its way with the things that are blocking progress. Um, we have had the same people in power for so long that we have given up, in effect, trying to make a more hopeful world. If you think about Joe Biden in 1972, he was 29 years old and a senator, and he's been there ever since, more or less. So hope comes from the fact that in 10 years' time, these people who seem like they would never leave the stage are going to be gone. And we have a one-time opportunity to reorder the world uh, around AI, around a different generation of leadership, around the fact that our phones really matter in a way that are far more consequential than a piece of technology would be expected to, much more akin to the printing press. And there are going to be a crazy set of opportunities that if we screw them up will probably mean the end of the world. And if we don't screw them up, um, we will be exploring the next systems, the successor systems. Instead of trying to take a twin-fitted sheet uh, and put it on a king-size mattress and that you know one corner was always going to pop off, that's what we've been doing for decades now. Um, sooner or later, somebody's going to have to buy or manufacture a much larger sheet for this mattress to get it to stay in place. And I think that what, what we're seeing is, I was previously hopeful that the post-World War II order would continue to hold so that the world didn't go multipolar with weapons of mass destruction. I think we're about to go multipolar. And if we survive that, then whatever structures that come after this, it's not going to be capitalism, it's not going to be communism, because you can see that ChatGPT and its successors are going to break the capital versus labor, labor uh, input. This is work that I'm doing with Pia Milani. Um, we're going to have new economic systems, and it's not going to be the same players from the 20th century who are already a quarter of the way through the 21st preventing progress. And it comes down to, well, what is it that people in their 30s through 50s uh, are going to re-engineer once the silent generation and boomers move on to better things? All right. Well, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to Locals where we ask Eric and Sam your questions and continue with our own. So what you're saying is you're pro-Trumps. Yeah. <laughs> Build the wall. Build the wall, exactly. You have recently made the decision not to speak to some people who disagree with you. Mm. Why is that? I think not, Brett is one of them. Not, let's not, let's, not, let's, let's not, break not that because bubble. they disagree with me, but because I, I think they've behaved unethically. I've all, always thought Brett was a, a, an extremely ethical person. I don't know how he got so turned around. 